Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Dr. Megan Mullen, Associate Professor of Environmental Politics at Duke University's Nicholas School of the Environment. I'll talk with Megan about her work on beaches. In particular, how do communities pay for building up beaches that are affected by erosion, and how do different tax rates affect the preferences of people to support those projects? We'll talk about how these policies are playing out today and what they might mean for the future in the context of a changing climate and rising sea levels. Stay with us. Okay, Megan Mullen from Duke University, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Thank you. So Megan, we're going to talk today about some work that you've done on um, coastal land use and particularly uh, around this issue called beach nourishment. But before we get into that, can you briefly tell us why uh, or how you got interested in environmental issues and maybe coastal issues in particular? You know, this is a hard question to answer (laughs) um, because there's really nothing in my family or background that would have led me to working on the environment. Um, So in thinking about this, you know, I first remember thinking about the environment at the counter of a Dunkin' Donuts. (laughs) Nice. Um, (laughs) Because I worked long hours at Dunkin' Donuts from when I was 14 to 18. And during the slow shifts, I would read the newspaper from front to back. And when I look back, you know, this was the time of Exxon Valdez when... James Hansen was drawing the nation's attention to greenhouse warming, um, to when President Bush campaigned as to be the environmental president and then came into office and, you know, tackled the problem of acid rain. And so it's really interesting. I, I somehow became convinced that environmental problems were the problems that I cared about the most and and that politics could offer a solution. And it's been sort of a meandering road since then, but I think I've followed that track, right? That interest in environment and politics ever since. Hmm. That's fascinating. And um, yeah, I mean, I wonder how many other people we can credit Dunkin' Donuts uh, for, <laughs> for getting into this field. I don't know. Um, the in glories any case, of the teenage job. Yeah, totally. Um, so as I mentioned a moment ago, we're going to talk about an article that you published uh, in 2018. The article is published with colleagues, uh, and it's called Paying to Save the Beach, Effects of Local Finance Decisions on Coastal Management, and it's in the journal Climatic Change. We'll have a link to it so people can can find it. Um, so the work focuses on, uh, you know, in my reading, how different members of coastal communities might feel about efforts to protect the shoreline, specifically through this thing called beach nourishment. So can you briefly get us started by telling us about how this particular research project came about and then maybe give us a little background on what beach nourishment is. I joined um, a team that had already been working um, in the space of coastal management. And it's a team of coastal scientists and economists. And they were looking at this coupled natural and human system that governs coastline change, the ways that decision-making about coastal management 
um, has impacts on wave activity and erosion patterns and, and the shape of the coastline that emerges over time, and then how those physical changes feed back into human decision-making. But the ways they had been thinking about human decision-making were all sort of the, the individual decisions of property owners at the coast. And they knew that a lot of these coastal management decisions were, were in fact, collective decisions. Um, and I'm a political scientist. Who, who does a lot of work on local politics. And so they invited me to join the team and think about how these individual preferences um, kind of aggregate into, into collective decisions. And so the interest here is on beach nourishment, which is quite simply the import of sand from some other location, um, typically offshore, to rebuild an eroded beach. And so it's an old practice. The first major project in the United States was almost 100 years ago. Um, but it it's increasing with time, right, as um, sea level rise and, and more frequent and more severe coastal storms are um, sort of amplifying erosion patterns at the shore. Right. Great. That makes sense. And um, when I think of beach nourishment, I often remember a trip I made to the North Carolina coast like 15 years ago, and there was this offshore dredging boat that was literally like digging up sand from, you know, 20 yards offshore and, and shooting it into the air and then over onto the beach. Um, but that there can there are a variety of sort of technologies that, that one might use to do beach nourishment, right? That's right. Yeah, there are a variety of different technologies. Usually it's coming from, from offshore and outside the scope of this paper, but part of this sort of larger project is exploring some of the um, dynamics about actual the sand supply, right? Because yeah. now as more communities um, are engaging in beach nourishment and more frequently, there's a race to the sand, right? There's higher value and lower value sand, and there's a lot of interesting dynamics around that process too. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, so thinking back to this issue of beach nourishment in communities, um, can you tell us about who usually pays for these types of projects? Is it like the federal government, state government, locals? Is it private, uh, you know, individuals or, or companies? Um, and so, uh, and and why might different members of any given community sort of have different views on on the value of of doing different levels of beach nourishment? Historically, um, nourishment projects in the United States have been funded and executed primarily uh, at the, by the federal government, by the Army Corps of Engineers, with states and localities contributing a share of the project's costs. But as federal funding has declined in recent years, um, and many communities that that had commitments from the federal government aren't seeing the money flow and more communities are confronting beach erosion many of these communities are now choosing to fund nourishment projects on their own and these are really major investments in what are often pretty small towns mm -hmm. um, and so we can think about nourishment projects offering kind of public and private benefits Right. So there's there's a community wide amenity value um, for a beach nourishment project. Right. It, it offers recreational benefits. It offers coastal views that are enjoyed by residents. And also these amenity values 
boost the tourism industry, right, which mm-hmm. is in many communities along the coast, an important economic engine for the town, and again, has these sort of community-wide benefits. But some community members benefit more from these projects than others do, because the projects also offer defensive benefits, right? right. They help properties um, uh, defend against strong ma- waves and, and storm surge. And so those with oceanfront homes that are most susceptible to storm damage and those who kind of care the most about the views and recreation, which are which are mostly going to be people in those oceanfront homes, those are the people who benefit the most from these projects. So there's this sort of combined public and private good that the nourishment projects offer. And what we're seeing is that in many communities, they're, they're using local finance instruments that actually capitalize on that combined public and private good. Right. And that's kind of one of the big mechanisms that you focus on in this paper is sort of differential property tax rates between individuals who may live on the coast and then individuals who live inland or, or further from, from the beach itself. Um, I would imagine that beachfront property owners are probably not all that enthusiastic about the idea of paying higher property taxes than than others who live in the community. Um, so are there, you know, in the places where these policies have been proposed or enacted, do you see sort of political impediments to imposing them and kind of making them work on the ground? We do, although in some sense, right, the, the, the instrument actually helps solve a problem for local political decision makers, right? So again, I come at this as a political scientist, and I really became interested in this work once I learned about this tax instrument, because from a politics point of view, it's brilliant, right? It helps overcome this challenge um, that that local decision makers often have, where they they want to provide public goods because that helps the community um, perform well, right, in its competition with its neighbors, right? So if we're thinking about, you know, tourist towns on the North Carolina coast, they're competing with one another for, you know, tourist um, activity. And so, so they want to provide public goods, but taxpayers often don't want to pay for those public goods. And so they're using these instruments, right, which have this differential property tax rate. So they, they pay for part of the project with a, with a citywide um, property tax increment. And then they define properties. They create these special taxing districts and define a set of properties that will differentially enjoy benefits from the project and tax those properties at a rate as much as 10 or 15 times the citywide tax rate. Wow. And so that's fascinating, right? And it solves this political problem. But of course, as you say, it can create, you know, opposition from those who are being taxed at a very high rate. And it's interesting, right? So there's looking at the cases it's often the oceanfront owners who are advocating most strongly for nourishment, right? They are the ones who will who will enjoy the kind of defensive benefits, the private goods from those nourishment projects. But of course, ideally, they want to absorb as little cost of the project as possible. Um, so in the paper, what we're doing is we're modeling how different tax ratios would benefit different community members based on their ability to 
capitalize that cost of the project into their home values, mm-hmm. right? And so we're we're modeling that out for for property owners both who are at the oceanfront would pay higher rates under a differential tax structure, but also enjoy higher benefits from the project, what their voting behavior might be under different conditions, and then what the voting behavior might be for the inland property owners who are paying lower rates and enjoying fewer benefits from the project. Right. And one of the findings in the paper, if I was reading things correctly, and, and please do correct me if I misunderstood this, but um, as as tax rates uh, go up for beachfront property owners relative to others in the community, they tend to become less supportive of larger beach nourishment projects, while those who live inland become more supportive. And that's you know fairly intuitive, I think, ju- judging from the, the background that you've given us. Um, but can you kind of walk us through what you see as some of the most important implications of that fairly intuitive finding? Sure. I, the, I'd say the most important implication is is what I started with, right? Mm-hmm. This kind of mixed tax instrument creates a possibility for funding beach nourishment projects, but also a variety of different types of public projects that offer this mix, right? This mix of broad public benefits, but also heterogeneous benefits where where some property owners are going to benefit more than others. Um, And this idea of this kind of tax instrument has appeared elsewhere in the literature. Sometimes people call it like a value capture concept. Mm -hmm. Um, And we... And, and so I think a really important implication is that um, this does offer some possibility of, of providing higher levels of public goods than you might get with sort of a strict flat tax um, and, and sort of a citywide vote if, you, if that's your decision mechanism. But, but there are limits on how disproportionate the funding can be, right? So, so we show that if you're modeling this decision-making mechanism, right, through sort of a strict majority vote, um, the inland property owners, right, are taking it at very high tax ratios. They're taking advantage of the possibility of oceanfront owners paying more for this project, and they're taking advantage of that to provide higher levels of the good than the oceanfront owners might prefer. Mm-hmm. Whereas at tax ratios that are more even, the oceanfront owners who enjoy more benefit take advantage, right, of that benefit to provide higher levels of good, right? So so there's it creates a possibility for more funding, but there are limits on how disproportionate the funding can be. Because once you um, keep sort of taxing those oceanfront owners at very high rates, there's the possibility for feedbacks, right, where ultimately those properties can no longer capitalize those values going out into the future. I'd say another important implication, just to, just to follow up, is that there's, there's an equity or a fairness implication here, too, um, you know, we're showing here how these heterogeneous benefits can be leveraged to build majority support to fund a project. But part of this, you know, critical to the setup that we have here is those who benefit most are owners of the highest value properties. So if we think about sort of exporting this concept to other types of goods, 
it would be a problem if those who enjoyed the disproportionate benefits were less wealthy than the average resident. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And um, I guess as you were talking, I was wondering about applying this principle to other other areas where there are sort of large differential risks and benefits that community members might bear. They're thinking about like wildfire prone areas in California or places with, you know, scenic views in the, in the woods or something like that. Have you thought uh, much about applying this concept in other domains outside of um, coastal, um, coastal contexts? I think the examples that you just um, drew on are good ones, right? Because you do get this same, um, uh, distribution really where, where those who might benefit most from the project are the higher value properties, right? Right. Um, other settings, I think where, um, you're situated more in urban settings and you're thinking about, you know, transit stations or, or, you know, schools policies or parks, you might get, again, kind of some of these equity questions Mm -hmm. becoming more forefront. Um, So yes, I've thought about it. I haven't done any modeling, but I think that it does, um, it sort of opens up a set of issues we should be thinking about with respect to climate adaptation, which is that, you know, adaptation goods are very often these kind of bundles that offer private benefits and public benefits. And so in a different paper, some co-authors and I are sort of piecing apart these good attributes in different sorts of um, coastal management adaptation policies, right? Protection, avoidance, retreat, and thinking about issues like the heterogeneity of benefits, the capital intensivity of these different policies in order to identify finance strategies that might be applicable and might be able to leverage some of these private benefits. Yeah, that sounds super interesting. Um, so, okay, so I'm going to take us back to the beach now. And um, one one of the distinctions you make in the paper is is between uh, different communities that you refer to as thick and thin beach communities. Can you tell us what is the distinction between thick and thin beach communities and why that might matter for uh, this types of uh, decision making on tax policy? Sure. We're modeling this, right, with sort of empirical foundations um, based on on research carried out by our team, but it's not situated in any particular empirical setting. It is, however, informed by our work out on the Outer Banks um, of North Carolina. And, you know, our idea in mind is um, these kind of coastal barrier islands, right? And so if you think about this kind of tax structure, it's really all about that mix of those who enjoy the concentrated benefit and those who only enjoy the sort of dispersed, broader benefit. And so thick and thin beach communities means what are the relative proportions of oceanfront owners who are enjoying this concentrated benefit, right? Because this setup spreads some fixed project cost across these different groups of homeowners. And so if you have a thin beach community, you have more oceanfront owners as a proportion of the 
of the overall tax base. If you have a thick community, you have a small proportion of oceanfront owners that might be bearing a very high cost for that project. And and the political implications in the modeling are that you know, these are two different groups, depending on the tax ratio, one's trying to sort of shift the burden of the project onto the other group. And it's in the thin communities where the groups are more equal in size, where you get more opportunity for preference mixing, right, for, for preferences to overlap with one another, and and for political coalition building that might allow the development of solutions that aren't just good for one group versus the other, but might allow sort of, you know, maximizing benefits to both groups. Mm -hmm. Great. That makes sense. And to, you know, if people are trying to visualize these types of communities, there, there are a couple images in the paper that are really helpful. One of them is a thin community where it's basically just like one road going down the Spirier Island. And, you know, so half of the people who, who live in the community are beachfront property owners and the others are, are quite close by. And then there's a thick community where there are multiple blocks uh, in, in this barrier island. And so you can see that there's a very different distribution of who would be benefiting uh, in different ways from these types of projects. Um, thinking about longer term implications of, of this work in a climate change context, you've already mentioned a couple of them. Uh, but, you know, one question that comes to mind for me is, as climate change, uh, you know, leads to higher sea levels and, and more severe storms, uh, are, do you have any concern about these types of property tax instruments uh, being like a one-way ratchet? So one could imagine them going higher and higher as there is more and more need for beach renourishment or nourishment in these communities. And at a certain point, one would think that uh, if the tax rates get high enough, then it's going to deter people from buying property in these areas, which could have you know maybe the opposite effect of what communities are going for in terms of economic development. So how do you think about... Um, sort of changes over time in a, in a changing climate. I think that you're reading it the same way I do, right? These property owners are, are sort of, in our model, continually trading off the value from more beach width um, with the cost for maintaining that width. But we're not incorporating at this stage, right, the real estate market response. If inland owners keep widening beaches at the expense of these oceanfront owners, right, the market for oceanfront properties is going to dry up, right? And then you no longer have that tax base to, mm-hmm. to exploit for yep. these kinds of projects. And of course, any single major storm that comes in is going to, you know, that may wipe out some chunk of these oceanfront properties will also damage that tax base, right? So this seems like a strategy that has limits, right? Time horizon limits on how long it can be sustained. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that leads into the other question I was going to ask, which is on a related note, uh, you know, you and your co-authors in the paper note that um, beach nourishment probably is not a viable long-term strategy for all of the coastal communities uh, that will be affected by uh, a changing climate and changing sea levels and storms, particularly if we think towards the end of the 21st century and beyond as, as sea level um, you know, rises one foot, two feet or, or more. Um, but you know, do you, are there any implications that you can draw out from this work about the willingness of coastal communities uh, writ large to pay for, uh, for climate adaptation efforts, whether they are protection or avoidance or retreat or anything else? 
I think it's right, right? I mean, these communities are are trying to sustain themselves right now. Um, and this is a strategy they're using. As I said, I, I find it sort of a really politically interesting strategy that they're using. But there are um, limits in a whole variety of ways, right? They're, the paper is part of this larger project. And in that larger project, we're thinking about a lot of the different feedbacks that are at play in coastal management, right? So nourishment in any one town is part of a larger system. There are externalities from one community nourishing its beaches for erosion patterns downshore. There are races for sand, as I mentioned. There's the fact that you can actually accelerate erosion by doing nourishment in some cases. And so it's really this, this sustaining pattern right now that's going to have limits. And then we'll have these sharp interventions from major storms. Um, so, so in thinking about this, right, we can't discount the importance of the immediate return in beach nourishment, right? Mm -hmm. There is this amenity value that exists in this policy space, right? Where you widen the beach and it's lovely. You can go fly a kite, right? You can take long walks on the beach. You get this scenic value and an immediate boost in your tourism revenue. Not all adaptation strategies are going to have that kind of um, immediate return, right? Mm -hmm. So it's harder to get the public excited about investment in flood drains, right? Or in elevating homes. Um, so I think that that we're in this phase right now of transition and and pushing to do business as usual as long as we can. And community by community, they're going to come up against the limits of that of that ability to, to sustain themselves. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, to, to put it really coarsely, like one could think of this as a sort of Band-Aid type solution, whereas in the longer term, we need sort of maybe more structural changes. Is that like a fair way to characterize it? I think that's a fair way to characterize it. I also think it's perfectly understandable, right? You know, these communities are doing what they can to keep what they have as long as possible. Um, and and that makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. As someone who has enjoyed the North Carolina beaches for, for many years, having grown up there, I, um, yeah, appreciate that very, very strongly. Um, so let's go now, uh, Megan, to our last question, which we ask all of our guests, which is what uh, you are reading or watching or listening to related to the environment that you think is really interesting or fun and that you'd recommend to our listeners. And um, I'll just sort of start with a, an article that I read as I was preparing for uh, this conversation, which was in the website called The Conversation, which is a... Uh, um, a website that publishes uh, work by academics, but written for very broad audiences. And right perfectly at my level, they have a section called Curious Kids, which is articles for children. Um, so that matched my knowledge level for this topic for sure. And there was an article called Where Does Beach Sand Come From? Uh, and it was a description of kind of the physical processes that lead to beach sand, you know, becoming beach sand uh, and eroding over time, how it, you know, differs in different parts of the world, how it moves around both on land and in the water, and then how human activities are, are changing it. Um, so that was just a really nice primer for me and also lots of cool pictures and uh, interesting ways to think about beach nourishment and, and other things related to beaches. Uh, but how about you, Megan? Uh, what's at the top of your reading stack? I'm going to keep 
with the kids theme. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested in how climate change appears or more commonly doesn't appear um, in music and movies and TV, right? And and what the kind of broader public is seeing and thinking about climate change. And so one thing that interested me recently was um, the Netflix series Dark Crystal, Age mm. of Resistance, which is a prequel to the old Jim Henson Dark Crystal movie. Right. And there's really an allegory in it uh, for climate change, right? And, you know, like an allegory, right? It's very simple. There's good, there's evil, right? There's sort of sharply drawn lines. But but underneath that is this really complex treatment of of what we owe to one another um, and how we might come together across differences to confront this common challenge. And in addition to that, there are some really beautiful puppets. <laughs> <laughs> Great. That sounds so cool. I have to check that out. If if I've never seen the original Dark Crystal movie, I know that's probably a sin, but I've never seen it. Will I still enjoy the prequel? Even more. Okay, good. All right. Well, I'll have to check it out and I hope our listeners will as well. And um, once again, uh, we'll say thank you to Megan Mullen from Duke University for talking to us today about your really fascinating work. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to Resources Radio. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of resources for the future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode. 